Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Frederick Dasso is a LinkedIn top voice and has written 100 startup profiles for Forbes.com. He has profiled startups ranging across enterprise technology, esports, fintech, HR tech, and ad tech. These startups are backed by renowned VCs such as Y Combinator, 500 Startups, Excel, and Craft Ventures. He has over 350,000 followers on LinkedIn, and his weekly newsletter on LinkedIn, named The Startup Conversation, has over 100,000 subscribers. Frederick is a full-time aerospace engineer at Boeing in the Engineering Career Foundation program. He was previously a venture fellow at Rough Draft Ventures, General Catalyst's student-led team funding student entrepreneurs in technology, and Castor Ventures, a smart and simple fund for MIT alumni to add venture capital to their portfolio while investing in MIT alumni-led companies. Frederick has completed his bachelor's and master's degrees in aerospace engineering from MIT. He has also been admitted into Harvard Business School's 2 plus 2 MBA program. In his spare time, he can be found playing video games and spending time with his family. You can follow him at www.linkedin.com slash in slash Frederick Dasso. You can also connect with him at a story for soda at gmail.com. You can find these links in the show notes. Fred, it's so good to have you on the show. Great to be here, Jeremy. How are you doing? <laughs> it's an awesome day. And, you know, I'm so excited to share your story because your story is such an interesting one around thought leadership and technology trends that so many people don't have an opportunity to be part of the epicenter of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, thank you for having me. Of course, I love to talk about these things. So feel free to ask me anything. I'm here to answer. You've done an incredible job just profiling so many great founders and publishing, you know, trends and thought leadership on multiple international publications. So who's the man behind the writing, you know? Tell us more about that. What's your journey? So a little bit about me. I was born in Virginia in the United States, lived there for about a year. Then my family moved out to California where my dad was working in aerospace. We lived in Southern California for around four to five years. And then my dad started working for the government, still with aerospace. That's what brought us to Alabama, where I've been more or less living ever since for the past 19 to 20 years. Growing up there, it was fantastic, really small town, but still like international in the sense because you have people from all over the world coming to work in aerospace. You know, you have the brightest minds coming together in, you know, hot and humid Huntsville, Alabama. And it was a really great time to grow up. I'm the middle child of three siblings, older brother, younger sister. We all did well. I, you know, I went into STEM and went to MIT to get my bachelor's and master's degrees in aerospace engineering. And while I was there, I did five internships at the Boeing company across its major business units. So commercial airplanes, defense, space, and security, and uh, research and technology. 
Global Services, which is now the third major business unit, wasn't around at the time. So while I was there also at MIT, I fell in love with writing. Um, writing is a way for me to express myself in ways where I can't in, you know, like you know, conversations, but not like this one, because we're going to get into a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it was just a really great way to express myself and going from writing about my time at MIT as an undergrad and grad student to writing on LinkedIn as a campus editor and talking about tech and education. I was able to use my voice and the things I cared about to get an opportunity to write for Forbes, where I'm now a contributor there covering early stage technology companies. I've written over 100 stories. I published my 100th one this month. It was a great story. And more importantly, it's been just a fantastic experience opening my eyes up to the world of tech and venture in general and talking with founders, people my age, such as yourself, who are going off, taking a risk, making great technologies to make a positive difference in the world. It's been fantastic. And I'm glad to share my story on here and get more into you know the guy who writes all these stories. Thanks for sharing the story of the author. <laughs> How did you personally get started in taught leadership? It was not like a direct journey. It was more a byproduct of just continuously posting content on LinkedIn. So if you're looking for like a chronological origin, I would say around like 2016, as you know, like LinkedIn really started to take off for me, my articles are getting a lot more visibility. I started transitioning into daily posts where I would talk about anything in tech, or at least the topics that I cared about. And I would just provide a hot take, you know, like I look at an article, gather an opinion, and then post it on there. And some were well received and some weren't, you know, some were controversial, and we can get into that later. But I realized that, you know, I was becoming a thought leader in the sense and this, and again, this isn't something that I went after with a conscience intent, it was just a byproduct. You, you start to build an audience of people who are waiting to hear what you have to say at a certain time during the day, right? And you have people engaging, you have people agreeing, disagreeing, you know, providing more context, providing more nuance, and you're starting to build a community. If you're, you're, if you're a successful thought leader, you're one who has a community around the things that you're trying to talk about. I think that's a byproduct of good writing, good communication, really at, a, at the most base level of a distinct and differentiated mind. So true. What were one of your early articles that really kind of kicked things off for you? I have to say it was my Hulk Hogan story. And really the way this, the title of the story was really Peter Thiel versus Gawker, right? You know, like whose side are you on? It's not the actual title, just paraphrasing. Essentially, it was centered around Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker. Quick background. Basically, Gawker ended up, you know, publishing a post on Hulk Hogan that it contained a sex tape with him having sex with another a man's woman, right? And that happened to appear in print. He wasn't happy about it. He decided to file a lawsuit. Hogan ultimately ends up winning the lawsuit, but it, it's revealed, you know, at the end of the trial or rightly after it concludes that Peter Thiel was bankrolling it. Why? Part of the reason why I'm not 100% conclusive on this, you know, like a decade prior to the lawsuit, the whole Hogan lawsuit, before Gawker was Gawker, it was known as Valleywag. And it, you know, the publication put out an article on Peter Thiel. He's a prominent person, fair game, right? But they outed him as being gay in, in this particular article. And so that clearly provides motive for uh, Teal to bankroll Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker, right? And so people were afraid that, wow, you know, this is creating like a legal precedent for people as wealthy as Teal to now be able to silence the free press. I said, no, 
That's not actually not what's happening. It's just, you know, the courts are going through their normal due process for the individuals involved. And it just so happens that a wealthy individual is backing, you know, a slightly less wealthy individual. It had the effect of Gawker going bankrupt. That doesn't mean that every case, you know, where an, a wealthy individual versus a free press, the free press is losing. And I think people are being hysterical about it. I got a lot of backlash, a lot of controversy because journalists, in some sense, didn't agree with my opinion or people who were a fan of the press didn't agree with my opinion. And that's fine. It didn't devolve into anything serious or life-threatening. It was just the sense that like, I really struck a nerve here because I'm talking about things in a different way that people didn't consider. And so, I mean, you know, I had people agreeing with me as well. But the point here is that my view expanded the discussion instead of reinforcing the already popular narratives that Teal's either a bad guy or he's a hero versus or Gawker's a bad guy or they're the hero. It was a really valuable lesson. And don't be afraid of controversy, right? Don't be afraid to speak your opinion. Just make sure that your intent is to provide another point of view versus being just outright provocative. And I think people tend to confuse the, the two a lot in social media. So why is thought leadership so important in technology? Thought leadership is important for technology because if you have an influence in the thoughts being shared, you will ultimately have an influence, not only just the technology that is built because of that thought, but more importantly, why it's being built. It's incredibly important to make sure that your perspective is captured in you know, that marketplace of ideas. Incredibly important. One of the practical examples of this is really the debate around how Amazon is using customer data. One you know, key example is their acquisition of Ring about a year, year and a half ago for the order of a billion dollars. Ring, this technology, consumer technology that allows you to essentially have video on your front step and see who's coming in, who's coming out. And you, know, you can have a continuous surveillance feed to make sure that you and your family are safe. So that's you know, kind of the first order of the technology, right? The second order is now what happens if everyone in your immediate locale, your neighborhood has this technology? How is it going to be used? Say there's a crime happening in progress. Now the police or the Neighborhood Watch Association or whatever authority can come through, collect the, the evidence from these ring doorbell door cams and essentially figure out like, okay, this is what happened. This is where the assailants went and you can make your community safer. All right, that's the second order. Now we look at the third order. Um, you know, what happens after this acquisition? How's Amazon going to use that data? Is it going to sell it to police departments? Is it going to sell it to uh, private entities? Like what specific data is being sold and how much is this worth? Do the consumers, the people who are producing this data, do they have a claim? Are they entitled to some portion of that value for what it's being sold, right? And it's important that you, if you're wanting to be a thought leader in this space, come up with a different perspective. So when these technologies are you know, inevitably built by some entrepreneur, your vision may or may not, or hopefully may influence them to build technologies that are better for the general populace as a whole. That's so true. I am a big reader of science fiction, and I often share that science fiction is a huge thought leader for so many founders because the technologies they envision on the show becomes reality because we're just following those conversations. You know, we saw those transparent, thin displays in Minority Report. <laughs> we saw the tricorder for healing and diagnosing diseases at Star Trek. And people have those conversations all the time to say that could be real one day. And it's interesting to see how those conversations are clear for the product sense in science fiction, but so much more so in the business side as well in the public domain. 
Right, right. And to jump in, you know, for another example, I think of, you know, Ender's Game by Orson Scott. And he essentially predicts or comes up with like a very early manifestation of the internet where all these people are distributed online in remote areas, but they're all communicating with one another. That's essentially the modern internet today. I forget what he terms it, but it's essentially what we have as a modern internet today. And, you know, no one could predict beyond the immediate advantages of communication that a lot of people are now making their living off of the internet, you know, selling products, goods, services, and it's fantastic. On the personal side, what hurdles did you personally face and how did you overcome them? I would say some have to do with my gender, my race, my ethnicity. So being a black male, people have certain preconceptions or stereotypes of you even before you enter the room. It makes doing your work, whether you're working individually and trying to become a partner with someone or you're working in a group setting, it makes it hard to get your point across because people have already limited their perception of you. And by extension, what valid or legitimate points that you can have in a certain discussion. It's really forced me to be more independent, to really focus more on developing my line of thinking and owning that line of thinking. I don't shy away from having opinions on anything or very little subjects. In the way that it's acted as a hindrance, it's actually given me the drive to really try and be better. And not out of a sense of being rejected by these people, but more about, I wouldn't want to do that to anyone else. And it's so the consequence is really me being more open-minded, me trying to seek out opinions from people that I don't agree with, whether personally or professionally, like for instance, blocking people on Twitter. I don't do that. I, I've never blocked a person on Twitter, at least yet unless you're being like completely rude or something, I'm not going to block you. You're not going to get the block. Uh, because I realized that those people, they happen to be right. It would be foolish for me to discount their perspective just because I don't agree with them on things that in the larger sense don't really matter. How do you feel that adversity has fueled your drive as a thought leader and in your professional achievements? As a thought leader in my professional achievements, adversity has really been a, a healthy source of wanting to do more, wanting to accomplish more, right? I mean, part of it is people say you can't, and then you go out and prove them wrong. But it's not necessarily about proving people wrong. It's about proving yourself right. It's about you having an idea, you having a vision, you having a reality, a, a dream, and then turning that into reality. That's more satisfying than what any other person says about what I can or cannot do, because that's just a consequence of the dearth of their imagination. If I didn't face these challenges, I don't think I would be as successful as I am professionally. And there's like this really good quote by an ancient Roman poet, I think his name's Horace, where he essentially says, your talents essentially would go undiscovered unless for adversity naturally bring them out. That's a paraphrase. That's not the exact quote. I live by that quote. I am a testament to that quote. And I'm thankful for the challenges that I've had to face because they've made me not just a better professional, but a better human being. So good to hear, you know, your personal journey here. Who are your role models in real life? Yeah, my real role models have to start with the family. You know, my mom, dad, brother, and sister, they've really encouraged me every step of the way. They never told me that there's something that I can't accomplish or something I can't do that's my unfair advantage. A huge part of the reason why I've been so successful is because I always had that constant source of unconditional support and love. Without that, I wouldn't have gone nearly as far as I have at this age today. Moving beyond my family, going to the professional side of things, the engineers that I've worked with, especially the senior ones, they've taught me how to conduct myself professionally, how to communicate my points across. 
and really just taught me how to get along with people in the workplace. Because there's going to be some people that you'll never see eye to eye with. But at the end of the day, as long as you can set aside your differences and say, we got to get this job done. And if you're able to do that, you're all good to go. And the third group of people, man, it would have to be my, you know, my closest friends from MIT. You know, shout out to, you know, Tamba, shout out to Andrew, shout out to Zach, shout out to Faraz. You four guys, I mean, and so many others, but really these four guys throughout undergrad and really through grad school, they helped me get through some tough times. The late night conversations over, you know, dinner and drinks, and then followed up by late night sessions of Call of Duty Black Ops 4 helped a fellow get through writing the thesis during research late at night, you know, 2, 3 a.m. Those conversations, we all refer to those times as the golden times because we knew that this was just a unique period in our lives where we're all going to be together. We're all just living and just having a good time. And I miss those days. I mean, sure, I make more money now, like actually being employed in the workforce. But when I was making roughly a third of what I make in grad school, I was having just as great of a time, if not greater in some sense, because we were all together. So never, never discount the value of friendship because it'll be there when other things, other seemingly material things in life won't be there. That's amazing. What support or resources are available for others considering a journey similar to yours? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so just by nature, the journey that I'm taking, there's not a lot of formal institutional resources. So you can reach me at a story for soda at gmail.com. You know, I'm happy to help, happy to answer questions. I try to always reach out to, or I try to always answer questions from my college students or people in high school, because I'm trying to provide the guidance that I wish I had very early on. Would I have been more successful? I don't know, but that's not the point, right? It's just, if you have a dream and you don't see it manifesting in like a traditional career path, don't be afraid to go and take it, right? Just by the nature of you trying to do something differently means that the institutions that you would hopefully rely on aren't there. And the ones that currently exist, they may not neatly fit into what you're trying to do. So you have to be intelligent about how you use them, how you take risks and, and such like that. So there's that from the institutional point. If you're fortunate enough to attend a four-year university within the United States, you know, try and get involved in your tech, your venture, your entrepreneurial clubs, right? And get involved early. The more that you surround yourself with people who are doing their own thing, the more likely you're going to be able to do your own thing because you just see them being able to do it, right? Which kind of gets into a meta point that I want to just make. There's a saying, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But I would add this, it's what you don't know that will hurt you or really has the most material impact on your life. So you should always be trying to figure out what you don't know and then going out to learn it, whether it's from an institution, whether it's from a person, try and figure that out because, and this is less of a resource and more of like a mode of thinking, because you're going to find the things that you don't know are going to have the greatest effect on your life because there's going to be things that you could have been good at because you didn't know, you know, you never pursued them. For instance, I didn't know that I really liked VC and working at rough draft ventures. And I didn't know that until my last year in grad school, if I would not taken the opportunity to send a cold email and reach out to the person running it and be like, hey, are you guys bringing on people for you know the next school year? I know that's a really long and winded answer, but if, if there's only one thing you take is try and quickly figure out what you don't know and then go learn it. What are some common misconceptions that you've encountered regarding thought leadership? I think the biggest one is the dominant focus on brand versus content. And I'm going to reframe it later as brand versus identity, but we're going to say content for now. A lot of thought leaders, from what I noticed, are so focused on how they're being perceived by their audience rather than 
what their audience is taking away from their content. It's more or less that they all just sound the same because they're all trying to be captivating. They're all trying to be alluring, you know, have charisma and stuff like that. That's the complete opposite of how I approach it. I approach it from a content perspective or really now to reframe it as a matter of identity. I focus on, you know, whatever I create, it should reflect my identity. It should reflect who I am. If it's personal and if it's professional, it should reflect what I think because that's what people engage with. They engage with what you're thinking rather than the artifice that is your brand. And if you do it right, the branding takes care of itself. And I'll give you a concrete example. I get emails frequently from entrepreneurs, seasoned entrepreneurs who raise from top funds saying that, hey, we've been contacted by the Wall Street Journal, you know, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, New York Times, but we want to work with you on, on Forbes with your column because, you know, of, because of the content that you produce. So you know, it wasn't because of my brand. Uh, my brand brought them in, but it was the identity, the identity reflected in my content that kept them to stay. And they're willing to work with me on my own timeline because I have people reaching out to me every day. I work a full-time job. I can't write your story right away like a normal journalist would be able to because they get paid to. But that's, that's another discussion. So, you know, the sense that because I focused on my identity, I focused on my thought and how I portray that thought in the stories I cover, you have people, really high quality people wanting to work with you. And so to bring it back to your question, don't focus on how you're being perceived, focus on how people are perceiving what you're producing. For people who are looking to build out their identity, what would you recommend them to write or create content around? So I'll give you my perspective, but this might not work for everyone, right? It worked for me and that's, that's all I can speak to. The general way I would go about this is one, figure out what are you passionate about writing about? And two, you know, figure out from the audience perspective, what do they care? And you should write about the things that, you know, meet at that intersection, what you care about versus what they want to read. For me, when I was starting out on LinkedIn, I was just kind of spitballing. I was just trying to see what would stick. You know, I, I wrote on a plenty of different topics. You know, I started talking about my internships, you know, at Boeing. I thought people would like to hear that. They didn't really care for it. I started talking about tech. You know, I started talking about what's going on at Facebook, what's going on at uh, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. You know, I started to get some response start talking about what it's like being a student at MIT, what it's like being able to pursue a four-year degree. People were interested in that. So I realized those are the things I like talking about. And those are the people things are interested in. Let me just go all in on that. And it worked out really well. So you have to find the intersection between what you like to talk about and what people like to listen to. And if that intersection exists, double down on it. And then start to talk about the things at that intersection that are not talked about. You know, I think that's the one way that you stand out and you become a thought leader, not because like that's the end goal, that's a byproduct, right? A lot of people confuse thought leadership as the being the end goal versus a byproduct of someone who thinks. I love that. That's a great summary of that. And I'm definitely going to crib that for future conversations. So I'm just kind of curious, who are the thought leaders that inspire you? Thought leaders that inspire me. Oh man, that's a good question. So I'm going to make an assumption and, and we'll keep this to like a professional lens here. I mean, he's more than a thought leader, but I would say like Barack Obama, the way that he approaches topics and the way that he breaks down things into parables or lessons and the way that he's able to communicate is incredibly attractive to me. And I think that's him as an orator is the thing I value about him the most. So I would say that I think in terms of tech, Ooh, that's a tough one because everyone has a take in tech nowadays. I would say 
Harry Stebbings, all right? Yesterday, uh, a TechCrunch article came out on him raising his own like formal fund, micro VC fund, 20 VC. This guy started out in, in, in England, right? Interviewing VCs, getting that you know, the big guest, Guy Kawasaki on Apple Evangelist. And from there, he's able to build up a network in the US. I mean, look, dude's not even on the same continent. And now he's able to you know, raise a formal fund and invest alongside of the, some of the best funds ever to do it. Sequoia, Founders Fund, Excel, etc. right? It's incredible to be honest with you. He has such a unique and diverse perspective on VC that not a lot of people get, at least from Twitter, right? So he brings something new to the conversation. And I think that's really the end consequence of of someone like him, right? Not him in particular, but if you're trying to do something new, you're going to be able to unlock a lot of really cool opportunities that wouldn't have existed in the first place had you gone down a traditional path. So there's that. So yeah, I mean, you know, he's definitely one of the people I pay attention to. And for sticking with tech, you know, Mike Moritz, Sequoia Capital, his work at time and leading to Sequoia was, I kind of see a parallel of my own writing for Forbes and, you know, becoming a VC at one point. I think the journalism, the VC route is really underrated. It's more common now, but I think the people who do it have a really unique perspective on tech that a lot of people from more traditional pathways in the VC. So we're talking management consulting, you know, investment banking, product management, right? At a top, uh, a top tech firm, or, you know, your founder yourself, they have a distinct perspective that I like to pay attention to. What is it about a journalist perspective that has that overlap and enrichment of the VC uh, approach? I think journalism does, or the journalist perspective, to use your words, does a great job of capturing context that, you know, from a tech perspective doesn't seem relevant, but really, really, you know, grounds the technology, grounds the founders and the ecosystem that they're trying to change. I think that's important because you can start to capture a sense of like, why is this technology going to take off versus, or why this founder is going to succeed versus other founders who are doing the same thing, you know, who are in the same space, but may not be doing the same, you know, exact thing, why they succeed versus the others. So I think in that perspective, journalism, journalists bring something different to the game than someone who came from an investment bank or someone who came from a top tier management consultancy firm. How do you process the information every day or every week? Is it Twitter? Do you wake up and check your email? Is it RSS feed? What does that look like? A lot of it starts with email, but that's just really catching up on emails that I should have like responded to maybe a couple of days ago or weeks ago to get more into your question. Man, I just read. LinkedIn's a huge thing for me because I've been using it for so long. And so like my feed is kind of knows what I like to see. And so I'm reading the latest tech content there from the major publications, you know, independent journalists like Ben Thompson. And those two things, email, LinkedIn feed, and then of course, Twitter. I've been using Twitter a lot more. Not that I should, because I think, and I guess this will be my controversial take. I don't think the, the opinions are, you know, the opinions I see on Twitter are high quality enough for me to pay attention to. And I'm sure I'm in the minority of that with a lot of people who are able to build their thought leadership through Twitter. It doesn't work for me. I'm generally not a fan of the platform, but I do realize that there are some certain things to pay attention to. And so that's why, that's why I use it. If we could flash forward, you know, a hundred years and someone was to Google Fred Dasso, what would you like them to be on the front page of uh, Google or whatever replaces Google by then? 
this is going to be counterintuitive, but I would hope I'm known more for my personal works. And I'm not talking like, you know, a traditional philanthropy. You know, I'm thinking like more on an individual level, not as a part of an institution or a formal like NGO organization, but more for my personal character rather than the things I've accomplished because, and I've accomplished a lot and I'm very proud of it, but you know, I don't think accomplishment or rather achievement is really the end all be all of things, right? I mean, I'd love to be known as like a great engineer, a great writer, a great VC all at one point. And those things are important because like the things I like to do, whether they're professional, personally, I like to do well. But I think it says a lot about a person if they're known for their character, most of all. And I, there's very few people who are known for their character before their achievements. So I think that's the mark of a true human being. And it kind of gets to an underlying topic of achievement versus exploration. But I'll leave that little seed there if you want to ask questions or pursue it later on. I have to ask now, like, tell me more. What does it mean? Yeah, achievement versus exploration. This is, yeah, we'll just say a concept I've been kind of thinking for uh, a good amount of time now. So I'm American. So I'm talking from an American-centric point of view. Achievement is the end-all be-all of our society, right? You know, how fast can you rise within a certain hierarchy, right? Whether it's in school, college, you know, your organization, your corporation, the, the Rotary Club, the places that you volunteer at to try and get some more of that prestige, that status. It's the end-all be-all, right? And does that make for a healthy society versus exploration where the people who weren't necessarily concerned with being the best in a certain order of things end up actually doing really, really, really well, right? Low-hanging fruit, easy example would be entrepreneurs, right? They weren't concerned about getting the highest grade or getting into the best school. They were more concerned about like following their curiosity and seeing where it led them. And, you know, this is not for me to, you know, ding on anyone who, you know, followed the, the normal paths. I mean, I, I, I did it. I'm doing it right now. But I've noticed that I'm getting a lot more value just exploring. And I've been able to do that with my writing. Writing has enabled me to explore. I want to make that very, very clear. By doing that, I've been able to achieve so much more than I would have if I've just, you know, focused on being a good student, of uh, being a good engineer, right? Writing has enabled me to be even a better engineer, a better student, because I can think a lot better. Writing has improved my ability to think. And I, that wouldn't have happened if I didn't explore the habit of writing, you know, the, 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 the career or not career, but the profession of writing. So to kind of resolve this, I mean, I've accomplished a lot. I would rather focus more on exploring more at this point in my life and seeing what aspects of my character have still yet to be refined or even discovered. Amazing, Fred. What a pleasure to hear your story and your insights and your themes. Thank you, Jeremy. No, it, it, it really means a lot that you'd invite me on here just to blab about what's going on in my life, the things I've done and really where I'm headed, right? So thank you for giving me this opportunity. And of course, thanks for asking fantastic questions. It's a good way to start off the Saturday morning, let me tell you that. Awesome, we'll see you around. <laughs>